Today we're going to look at two very well-known events in the life of Christ, the baptism of Jesus and the subsequent and almost immediate temptation in the wilderness. But we're going to see them as a single episode because what these two events represent is the inauguration of the ministry years. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 into chapter 4. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Move forward to verse 11. John is speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus said, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Verse 17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. So in other words, these two events inaugurate Jesus' ministry years. Right away, there's so much that jumps out here. We see the Trinity revealed. You might want to circle these words in verse 16, Jesus, the Spirit, and then in verse 17, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. This is the first time we see all three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, present and revealed in a single instant. The reality of the spiritual world breaking into the, what we call the natural world. We also see the enemy of God. 
Satan the tempter. We see baptism. We see temptation. How often have you heard the second piece of this text preached on about how you and I can learn to deal with temptation ourselves? What we're going to see is that while there's something to be learned there, the point isn't necessarily how Jesus repelled temptation. The greater point is that he did. There's so many places we could go. What is it that we're really meant to see in the story? We're going to answer that by going through the insert. And the first question we're going to ask is, why was Jesus baptized? And then we're going to talk about why did he need to be tempted? What does it mean? How could he even be tempted? And then third, we're going to look at what that does mean for us in terms of what we're supposed to understand about Jesus and how it applies to our lives. So let's look at why Jesus had to be baptized. For many of us, we have this idea that Christianity invented baptism. The first time you hear of it is John baptizing. Most of us think that's really where it began. And then Jesus commissions his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news. And as those who profess faith in him come to that faith, baptize them. So we think baptism is a distinctly Christian thing. Over 2,000 years, baptism has begun to express itself in very diverse ways. People think of it more through their traditions or as an outgrowth of a particular school of theology that leads us to a certain practice, pedo-baptism. Pedo-baptism to remove original sin, which is the Catholic view. Pedo-baptism as a covenant expression of the New Testament equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament. A dedication, a setting apart of the child. Adult baptism. Adult baptism for regeneration, cleansing us from sin. Baptism for an adult as symbolic. Baptism that sprinkles. Baptism that dips. Baptism that pours. We're all over the map. And we've come to just accept that. It's one of those secondary doctrines that we agree to not argue about in the broader body of Christ. But is there a form of baptism that Jesus actually intended? Today, I'm I'm going to share with you the historical basis for baptism that was very prevalent in Jesus' day. You see, baptism was a very common thing that dates back all the way to the Old Testament law. The word baptizo actually means submerge. Did you know that? We've turned it into a term. In the scriptures, it's meant as a description of an act. And that act is to submerge. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew tradition known as mikvah. I want you to just take a moment and watch a video where a messianic rabbi describes the ancient rite of mikvah as it was practiced in the Old Testament and as it existed in the time of Christ. I think you'll learn a lot. By the way, a Messianic rabbi is a Jewish rabbi who acknowledges Jesus as his Christ, as his Messiah, a brother in Christ. So watch just for a few minutes. And this will really help you understand as we come to addressing the question, why would Jesus be baptized? That would be a mikvah in Jewish terms where it's full immersion underwater very important symbolism in the Torah. So it goes all the way back. It was for, to symbolize cleansings, healings, um, uh, even a woman after a monthly period, it talks in the Bible, you know, after that time, take a symbolic uh, mikvah in war as a symbol of her ritual uh, cleansing. Uh, 
So it's very interesting and, and very logical that when we come to the New Testament time, the first century, both with John the Immerser, I call him, he wasn't really a Baptist, right? Uh, but John the Immerser was following this custom in the wilderness, calling on the Jewish community to repent and get ready for the Messiah. And those who had a change of heart were to take this symbolic mikvah in the Jordan River to illustrate, I'm getting ready for the Messiah. So uh, that was not like an unknown thing. I, I want to emphasize, it wasn't like Jews were saying, wow, this is like a totally new thing, never heard of this. But what was different about it is that he said, get ready for the Messiah. It's a messianic mikvah, so to speak. The Messiah himself had a mikvah to illustrate that he's starting his public ministry. Of course, his last commandment, uh, earthly commandment to his disciples, go into all nations and immerse them those who become disciples. But immerse them in my name, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So again, the, the distinctiveness, the unusualness is not the mikvah itself. This is a very common Jewish custom, we you know from, from biblical times. But the, to have a mikvah in the name of Yeshua, I believe he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, and I'm taking this immersion to say he's changed my heart. So if you place the act that we're seeing here in its historical context and understand that, this is a very common practice. We recognize that what Jesus was doing in this time was an act of consecration, a ritualistic submersion. It always symbolized, had symbolized for centuries, leaving the past behind into a new life. It was common, for instance, many young men in the, in the days of Jesus, when they chose to follow a rabbi, would begin that life by going to the water and immersing themselves in the name of that rabbi. And then they would come out of the water into a new life. The water itself had no power. It was a ritual. It was a ceremony indicating that a change of heart had occurred. The past is being left behind. So at the end of his life, when Jesus says, now you go, as the rabbi said, when you go and make disciples of me, their first act of obedience is a ritualistic immersion, leaving their old life behind, stepping into new life. It's best defined and explained by Paul in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Christ was calling them to do was the ultimate fulfillment of another ancient Hebrew practice, just like we have so often in our journey through the Old Testament, seen how all of these things that were set up in the Old Testament prepared the way for Christ in the gospel. And in the same way, what we are really doing when we baptize is participating in the messianic mikveh, that's why at the journey here, we practice what we call believer's baptism by immersion. Of course, that's theoretical. We've yet to actually practice it. <laughs> but we would like to have a baptism. Certainly in a room this size and in, in this region, uh, many of you were probably baptized as infants. I would encourage you to really pray seriously about the intent of Christ in saying the first act of obedience in my journey to Christ is to publicly declare that I have left my life behind 
And I have buried that old life, and then going into the water and coming out, I'm entering into new life with Christ. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but I already was, so can I still do that? Well, of course you can. <laughs> and if I do that, doesn't that mean that the old was wrong and, and I have to decry that as heresy? Well, not necessarily. You know, for those of us that were baptized as infants, whose decision was that? It was your parents' decision. What an incredible gift that as best as they understood it, they wanted to make sure that somehow, as they understood it, you were going to go to heaven. Or they were setting you apart to raise you to fear and love and follow God. What a great gift. So this is the result of that. It doesn't have to be either or. But it ought to be believer's baptism. It ought to be that. And if there are those of you here that are saying, well, I've never been baptized, I don't intend to because there's so many different issues, for you it becomes an issue of obedience. It, it really does. And if you're unable to get to that point, you have to look very seriously about the reality of your commitment to Christ now that you understand what he intended. So think about that. Glad to bring hopefully some light to it for you and have you understand uh, where we're at on it. And we are hoping to have a baptism soon. If you're interested in talking about that, being a part of it, let me know. I'll be happy to include you in the list. And by the way, we're looking for a heated pool someplace. (laughs) Someplace. Either that or we're going to just go crack the ice on. (laughs) That would make it authentic. All right. So with all that in mind, why did Jesus mikvah? When John said to him, why are you going to be baptized? At this point, From what we know from the other Gospels, John was not really clear that Jesus was the Messiah. John, he says, it was after I baptized Jesus. God had told me that when I see the Holy Spirit descending, then I'll know he's the Messiah. It's after that that John then sees Jesus coming and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus answered John, It's important that all is done to satisfy righteousness. I am about to set myself apart for God's mission for me. I want to offer quickly four reasons why Jesus was baptized. First was to set himself apart for God's plan, as was the tradition of the day. The second was to confirm and reveal himself as the Messiah. This is where Jesus is officially approved by his Father in front of the world as the one that he had promised. Not just the Holy Spirit coming down and lighting on the Son, but what the Father says is really important. Let's look at it. Verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We also might think this is the first time those words were spoken but it's not. It was actually two different scripture quotations put together for the very first time. The first section is, this is my son whom I love. And every listener to the voice of God that witnessed the baptism of Jesus would recognize that that was from Psalm 2. You go back and read it later. We won't for now. But it is one of the more well-known messianic psalms. Make no mistake, those who were listening heard a divine voice saying, this is the Messiah. The second section where he says, with him I am well pleased, well, that was a little odd for the average listener because that was a quote from Isaiah 43. 
Isaiah 43 spoke about this mysterious character known as the suffering servant that no rabbi at that point attributed to the Christ who would come because they were looking for a Christ who would come victorious in a military might to defeat Rome and to liberate Israel and to reestablish a throne of David on the holy mountain. So they were not viewing Isaiah 43 as that Christ. So imagine the unique coming together of these two statements. This is the Christ, but wait, he's the suffering servant. See, we look back on that and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because we recognize that when Isaiah was saying he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. When we hear Isaiah's words spoken four centuries before this, we know that was Christ. But this was new to the listener. The gospel is revealed even at the baptism of Jesus. And I believe that's why John had insight to say, he's the Lamb of God. He's not just the Christ. He's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. He was revealed as Messiah. The third reason why Jesus had to be baptized, I believe, is because he was entering into his priestly function. Right? He is our great high priest. The mikvah practice occurred each time the high priest prepared to go into the Holy of Holies. The writer of Hebrews lets us know that Jesus entered that holy place with his own blood. And in doing that, he made a way, he removed the barrier so that we can come into that place. Picture this. Jesus, the true and great high priest, before he begins his three-year trek towards the cross, enters into his time of priesthood through a mikvah. And the fourth reason, and this is an important one because this will help us look at why the baptism and the temptation are part of the same episode in Jesus' life. The fourth thing is that Jesus was baptized in order to fully identify himself with humanity. We know that Jesus was holy. We know that he was holy. This is what John meant See, John and Jesus grew up as cousins, knew each other, played together. John knew a lot about Jesus. John's baptism was for repentance. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, what he was saying to Jesus was, you don't need repentance. You're the one that's lived a pure life. I see no guile, no evil in you. You don't need a baptism. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus embraced mikvah in order to embrace the reality that humanity does need spiritual cleansing. And that's really important. It's what we refer to theologically as the kenosis of Christ, the full extent of his incarnation. Now, we spend so much time in today's day and age, because it's so secular, trying to defend Jesus' deity. We spend so much time doing that that we may miss out on the equal significance of his humanity. The passage I want you to say with me is from Philippians 2, where Paul teaches on the kenosis of Christ. This is from the New Living Translation. Let's say it together. Though he was God, he was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The important thing for us to understand 
that the baptism and the temptation of Christ reveal to us and we're able to see confirmed going forward is that Jesus, although he was God, surrendered his rights and authority as God, chose to deliberately set aside his power and privileges and limited himself to live as a man. Even in Mark 3, Jesus says his miracles are not from his own power. Even his miracles, he attributes to the work of the Holy Spirit through him and then says to his disciples, in the same way that God's using me to do miracles, he can use you. So even the miracles are not done out of Christ's own divinity. He chose to live completely as a man. And it was essential for Jesus to live as a man in order for him to die the death that represented the whole race. I find that so meaningful because that's what Paul's getting at when he said he humbled himself and became completely obedient to death. Even death on a cross. No wonder God exalted him. What an act of sacrifice, of condescension for us and in obedience to the Father. In baptism, he's identifying with humanity, their need for new life. He's identifying with sin because three short years from now, he would take on all of the sin of humanity. He would take it all. It would be imputed on him as he hung on the cross, bearing the punishment for that sin. So already he's identifying himself with that sin and the need for forgiveness, the purpose for which he came. Now, with that in mind, we're able to go forward and recognize that immediately coming out of the baptism, it says the Holy Spirit moved Jesus into the wilderness where he was to be tempted. There's so much that we could talk about here. But what I want to focus on is why was Jesus tempted? What was the purpose behind it? The way to fully understand what's going on here is to look at it through the lens of the kenosis. The relinquishing of his rights as God And if you do that, you'll recognize that what Satan is attempting to see Christ do in these temptations is to take up the rights as God that he had surrendered in order to be the sacrifice for our sins. See, the baptism of Jesus reveals his identification with humanity. In the temptation, the enemy attacks that identification and seeks to end it before it can go too far and result in in the cross, to end it before he really gets started. Think about this. What's the very first thing that Satan says when he tempts him? What's the very first thing he says? If you are the Son of God. The actual Greek there is, since you are the Son of God. That's what the word if means. It's not like, prove to me you are the Son of God. He's saying, since you are the Son of God, you're hungry, make bread. It's a temptation for Christ to assert his deity for his own benefit. What's the first word that Jesus uses in answering? What's the first word in the scripture he quotes? Man. Satan says, hey, you're the son of God. Make it work. Jesus says, I'm also man. I'm here to submit to humanity. And man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, really powerful when you look at it that way. The second, prove that the Father is with you. 
That's really what he's saying. When Jesus responds with the scripture that says, thou shalt not test the Lord your God, he's not referring to himself being tested. He's not asserting his deity over Satan. Satan already acknowledged that he's divine. You are the son of God. Satan is saying, put yourself at the point where the father needs to rescue you because he promises he will. So in the first place, Satan is saying to him, you don't have to live as a man. You don't have to go hungry. You don't have to experience it all. You've got it in you to avoid it, to provide for yourself. You don't have to live as a man. In the second temptation, Satan is saying to him, you don't have to be rejected by the Father. The Father can swoop in to save you. Wouldn't that be so much better? But Jesus didn't come to be rescued by the Father. He came to be rejected by the Father for us. So what Satan's saying to him is, you don't have to be rejected. You don't have to face that. And that's why Jesus says to him, don't test the Lord your God. It is written so. Yes, it's of note that Jesus repels the temptation of Satan all with Scripture. There's power in that, and there's a lesson for us today. But of course Jesus would do that. After all, they were his words, weren't they? The third temptation He takes him to a high mountain, reveals to him all the kingdoms of the world, which we recognize from Scripture. Those are under the domain of Satan. And what he says to him is, I'll put you over all of it, all you need to do. And the word worship there isn't worship as we think of it, as a deity. You just need to honor my authority. Honor me. Proskuneo. Bow. Submit yourself to me. What Satan says to him is, you don't have to do this the hard way. There's a way of taking back what you have lost. I'll just give it to you if you'll just acknowledge my authority. You don't have to face scorn and shame. You don't have to become sin. You don't need to be beaten to near death. You don't need to be suspended on the cross You don't need to face the rejection of the Father. You don't need to go down that path. There's an easier way. Just give me some credit here. And, of course, Jesus says, get away, Satan. You will worship the Lord your God only, and he is all you will serve. And at that moment, Satan leaves. The angels come and give him comfort, and he begins his ministry. How powerful is that? When you look at it that way, at the very beginning, you have this moment where Christ sets himself apart. Satan swoops in and says, you don't need to live as a man. You don't need to be in want or in physical need. You don't need to suffer the rejection of the Father. You can stay in fellowship with him, have him come and save you. You don't need to bear the cross. You don't need to do any of that. Take back your authority, because Satan knew that Christ being found in appearance as a man was the only real path to the cross. Aren't you glad he chose the hard way? And what we have as a result is a Savior who experienced all of life as we experience it. See, that's what the kenosis means for us. That our Savior is fully acquainted with our grief, our sorrows, with all of our struggles. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said this, and let's say this together. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. He is the sympathetic, suffering Savior, but he passed the test that Adam failed, and ultimately all of us fail that test. It's why we needed a Savior. We needed God to do more than decree and say, do better. We needed a God that could come down and take the punishment for our sin that we deserved. And the only way he could do that was to let go of all that was rightfully his, live as a man, but make every single time all the right choices so that when he died, he didn't have to die for his sin. He could die for you and for me. And that brings us to the last verse. Let's put it up on the screen. Say it together. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone that belongs to Christ will be given new life. Grateful that he became one of us. Fully God, but fully man. The perfect lamb of God. We all died in Adam. We all belong to Adam's race. You and I prove it every single day of our lives. Not one of us is above that. But the perfect Christ made it possible for us to have new life in him if we belong to him by faith. Perhaps this is your moment to say, I see it. I see Jesus as my Savior. And at this moment, I want to surrender to him. I want to come to him. I want to experience new life because he took my sin. I, I want to receive him as my Savior. You can do that right now in your chair by simply surrendering to him admitting your need for forgiveness, confessing that he is your Lord, your Savior, and believe in that and commit to it. And then sometime soon, submerge yourself. <laughs> but for now, take a step of faith and submit yourself to Christ as Savior. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we all who are your children surrender afresh to you as our Savior. We died in Adam, but we live in you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.